Hello, everyone. Thanks for making time to check out the Black Studies podcast. My name is Aldo Bergatav. I'm a second year student at McMaster University in the Bachelor of Health Sciences program with a child health specialization. And I'm delighted to be co-hosting the episode with Daniel McNeil. Thanks so much, Aldo. My name is Daniel McNeil, and I'm the Queen's National Scholar Chair in Black Studies at Queen's University. In this episode of the podcast, we're joined by my colleague, Dr. Delitzo Rue as well as Dr. Ruben May, to discuss how hip hop informs their approaches to philosophy, pedagogy, and liberation. Professor Ruben May is a professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's also the author of three books, one of which is the award-winning Living Through the Hoop, High School Basketball, Race, and the American Dream. He's been a fellow at the Du Bois Institute for African and African-American Research at Harvard University. He's also been a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. visiting professor at MIT. He received his PhD in sociology from the University of Chicago and his research has examined race and culture, urban ethnography, the sociology of sport and the sociology of the everyday. And in addition to his awards, books, and scholarly publications, he's been featured across multiple and diverse media for his performances as hashtag the rapping professor, Reginald S. Stuckey. As well, we will be joined with Dr. Delitzo Rue, who holds a cross-appointment in philosophy and Black studies at Queen's University. Previously, he was a 2020 to 2021 postdoc fellow under the extending uh, new narratives in the history of philosophy at the University of Guelph. Dr. Rue's research focuses on intellectual history of Africana philosophy, anti-colonial theory, Africana legal history, Black male studies, hip-hop philosophy, and Black philosophies of education. His publications appear in APA newsletter, um, the Black Experience, Theory and Event, Teacher's College Record, and the Blackwell Companion to Public Philosophy. He's currently working on a monograph entitled Horrors of Flesh, Essays on Black Misandric Violence, which traces different misandric um, justifications that have been given to enact violence against Black males from the age of slavery through our contemporary times. Thanks so much, uh, Ruben Delitzo, for making time to join us this afternoon. Uh, we're thrilled to think with you about collaborative and creative knowledge making and think about your work and how it's invited us to think more broadly about Black politics broadly conceived and particularly helping us to think about struggles for political authority and legitimacy in the dance hall, in the concert stage and the pulpit, as well as in the polling booth and the protest march. And maybe one way to kick off our conversation is maybe to think about where did you first meet and maybe where did you first encounter 
each other's work. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll say thank you. I'll go first, I guess. Uh, I figured the Litso uh, would defer. I do not remember the exact day or time that I met uh, the Litso, but I remember him being the person that approached me. Uh, and the first thing that I really got from my interaction with him was a a, a reverence for uh, the older folks in the academy and what they could offer. So I would the 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 frequent memory I have of just seeing him over and over again uh, in the public space and always showing deference, always asking what's going on, always asking what I'm thinking about. And so he was a very engaged person, and that that's what really. Uh, I think connected us, uh, uh, but I, I can't remember the exact day, but it's probably outside somewhere. <laughs> he was in, in passing. He knew who I was and he stopped and we talked. So, Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an honor to be here on the podcast. Uh, Dr. May is, as hopefully as the conversation will show, is an engaged intellectual in so many ways. And so uh, it is quite the honor to be able to have this first discourse with him. So thank you for hosting us. Uh, we appreciate the conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, in some senses, I remember first meeting Dr. May as a graduate student in Texas A&M, 2016 or 17. Um, I was walking down to the library and I had an MIT hat on and I was <laughs> listening to music. And, you know, the library was just adjacent to the sociology building, which Dr. May was teaching in. Um, and I remember, you know, people on campus were talking about this professor in sociology who does hip hop, right? And so I was like, wait, you know, I had a friend, a couple of friends in sociology. And so they showed me a picture. So I remember walking and meeting Dr. May because I had an MIT hat on. And he said, you went to MIT? And I instinctually, I said, no, you're the rapping professor. You're the professor who raps in sociology. <laughs> so the conversation turned into this conversation about his time, both at MIT and Harvard and, you know, my own affinity for hip hop, but he's also his affinity for hip hop. And, you know, from then it was just a constant barrage where I would always bag Dr. May about just everything possible, right? Because it was... You know, it was a great thing to see, particularly in a Southern University like Texas A&M, um, a black male professor, both embodying sort of the hip hop modality, but also being a renowned professor. Right. It was it was quite the thing for me to be able to see and engage with him. I would I would add this something that's pretty interesting because you mentioned the the hip hop uh, side of things. And, and I would say for some time, I'd always thought of myself as a as a novelty with respect to being engaged in, in that, both the intellectual discourse, the written word and scholarship, and then, you know, playing around with the hip hop thing on the side. But I'm, I'm running into so many brothers now that are very engaged and it's, it's something they grew up with. And so it's just a part of who they are. And they, a lot of them incorporated actually into their, into their scholarship. I, I don't do it that way. I keep it separate as an engagement, uh, but it is a great place for as an outlet for me to kind of to share what I'm thinking about uh, with respect to being a, a, a black man, <laughs> a black man at predominantly white campuses. So. Yeah. No, I mean, so which which was interesting for me, because at the time uh, in undergrad, I was a research assistant for a philosopher working around hip hop as a pedagogical tool. And so I think when I first got to grad school, I thought of myself as a hip hop philosopher because we did a book on Jay-Z as a hip hop philosopher. We wrote some essays on Kanye. Um, and so I think I was thinking about pedagogy. And I think one of the times I was asking you to help me direct a study on using hip hop and ethics, right? Like thinking about a study. Um, but I was drawn to the fact that you actually do hip hop, right? Like it was a different thing from 
my philosophical investigation towards you actually write music and you were doing music. Um, and so I'm just curious if maybe like, you know, when's the first time you actually performed the music? How does it transition from an affinity towards you developing an actual persona as both a hip hop practitioner and a professor? So so you you kind of forced me to think back. Uh, I, I, gr- I grew up in Chicago and uh, growing up in Chicago, you're always exposed to house music. It's a very it has its roots. Uh, in Chicago, uh, it was a definitely a black thing. It was a, a space where I was first exposed to black sexuality in a different kind of way than I had been. Uh, and oddly enough, hip hop comes along in the eighties, and it's an intrusion, so to speak, into to the world that I'm used to, which is the the house music. But I was completely fascinated by the fact that so many people uh, were using uh, this this art form as a way to communicate uh, very uh, interesting and complex ideas, um, and especially uh, within the context of Black identity. So for me, the the period of time that we're talking about is the De La Soul, uh, is the uh, you know uh, poetic rappers. Those 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 folks are talking about real things that Black people deal with, uh, and so so for me, it was being connected to that. But it's always been an outlet for me that's separate from the intellectual, um, you know, pursuits. My mother would say otherwise, (laughs) but it's always just a very personal thing. So I never wanted it to be a part of my, my scholarship in the sense that here is, it's an interesting balance. Uh, you are thought of as a, as an intellectual and, Typically, that means that everything that has to do with pop, mainstream, uh, low, quote, quote unquote, low culture does not intrude into that space. And so I recognize that people could look at me and view me as just this, you know, uh, this person seeking to engage in a world where as a scholar, I shouldn't be. So that's why I always kept it separate, right? That was a, the, and now I see that people are opening it up in a very real way and, and thinking about it. So, uh, the motivation for me to perform came from, in fact, a student who thought that I should be <laughs> performing. And so I felt motivated by this idea, uh, that I could share my story through, through performance. And fortunately for me, it's worked out where people have been able to enjoy that. Uh, but again, I still keep it as a very separate enterprise. Uh, you know, I just think, I just think that I can, that to be taken seriously, which is a fascinating way to think, to be taken seriously, people don't necessarily want to see it. you engage with it, that art form in the same way. It just has too many stigmas to it. So that's the, you know, the tension that goes with it uh, for me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's interesting, right? Because even when we think about hip hop, it has different sort of brackets and genres from political rap to it's like, I mean, there's debates like is hip hop hip hop and what's rap, right? Like, like these segments of how we talk about it and even corporate hip hop and what that may mean. But also just thinking about you as an intellectual, right? Like curious, just your background in terms of formulation and, and how as much as it's not in your written work, so I'm thinking about your teaching awards, right? You are a distinguished professor. Your teaching awards speak records. And arguably the best of hip hop is that hip hop artists teach, right? You, you're a master teacher. Knowledge is something fundamental to a hip hop artist. So I'm just wondering about the creativity that goes in for you as a distinguished professor, but also an MC doing hip hop. 
what is the symbiotic relationship you have there with knowledge? I, I like to tell people that uh, for me, uh, thinking about, uh, you know, issues, uh, black politics, uh, sociology, uh, African-Americans, uh, the times of the kinds of tensions and issues we're dealing with, um, that hip hop is a way for me to express those. Uh, it's also a space where I can be creative. And I tell people frequently that that um, uh, that my engagement with the art form uh, is similar to the way that I think about what I'm doing in the classroom. My goal is to connect with students in a way that help them to feel uh, feel the the power that I'm expressing that in the same way that I do in in my music. And so uh, for me, it's just another uh, creative outlet. Uh, and my teaching is the same way. It works the same way for me. Uh, I think the one thing that really engages students as we think about this and attracts them to they understand that I'm I'm with their <laughs> with their I guess generation or with their group because I'm doing something that they relate to. And it doesn't really matter about the content. So I can focus on the intellectual content in the course and not talk about anything serious outside of that. They just like the fact that I do that and can appreciate it, right? Um and so I just I just see it as another creative realm. Uh, that helps me to to sometimes deal with struggles that are specifically related to being uh, a black scholar on predominantly white campuses. Uh, words, lyrics, and such are coded, so you know I, you wouldn't dare talk about a dean like you know the dean did such and such, such and such. But certainly you can give them a pseudonym and then go to work on them. So it's, it's another way for me to be creative in, in that regard. Um, so there's a whole like cove book, so to speak, about what I'm doing. Uh, so it's public yet private. But hip hop itself was one of the things that actually helped me through the 80s. Um, I was a, a law student in 1988. And uh, the first semester I did fine. Then the second semester, there was a young man who was uh, beaten by the police. Um, and my girlfriend at the time introduced me to a community organizer. And he said, you have to do something. This young man will be railroaded. Um, and I stood up, protest and rally and and of course, as Daniel notes, we want to move outside of this idea of just protesting the struggles in the streets. Right. But that's what I did as a young person. And I think those things really belong to young people in the sense that they have the stamina, the energy to be engaged in a very real way. And so I set up this rally and we protested. I failed out of law school. And I, the first thing that I did when I got the news was uh, I wrote rap lyrics says, take a stand, black man, do what you can to understand the sign of the times in. Right. So the, so for me, it was a way to get like my disappointment from not being focused, but recognizing I had to make a choice in order to to advance the cause of black people uh, and advance justice for this young man. So it's always been a part of, you know, like how I'm thinking about the world. 
Uh, and like I said, I have favorite artists that, that really engage those things. And I became interested in, you know, uh, five percenters, you know, all kinds of things from, from the hip hop. So it gave me, it brought, it actually broadened, uh, my theoretical perspective because the poets of the street were actually giving me things and ways to think about it that, that not just the reading was doing. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's a profound story, right? So I'm, I'm also just thinking about like Imani Perry's, uh, you know, she, she writes a text about hip hop and critical race theory, and she's writing about the modalities in which rappers engage with, you know, the American legal system in ways that matter. So I'm thinking, so literally when you said that story, I was like, wow, yeah, you know, that the best of some best aspects. Um, and just to, again, just to maybe just, you know, reiterate just this question of knowledge, right? Because as you pointed out, the street poets matter and, and the construction of knowledge, but even your entry into academia, right? Like you've written songs in light of things that have happened, both the good and the, the you know, I'm just wondering about that journey too, like the, the politicization of knowledge for you in its own self, right? You do sociology of knowledge, the construction of that, and even just as you're speaking, teaching the affect of that production, and maybe also some of your favorite artists, like have you has with each generation of hip hop artists, has that changed? Like does your top five change this year? Do you still retain <laughs> the ones that you love since the eighties? Like how is this happening? Yeah. So I I I mean I definitely feel like um you know, I feel like the music itself has changed. It was much more politically focused. It was much more identity focused. It was much less about, um, you know, capitalist pursuits in the context of the, you know, the hood. Uh, it was uh, less about womanizing. Yes, there was a presence of women, but that that wasn't what it was about. Um, but as a, as a person that follows hip hop, the creativity itself is always fascinating to me. So even young artists that create uh, they connect to me. They extend my knowledge base, right? They extend the way that I'm thinking about uh, the world. But then there's staples like KRS-One. He just dropped a song and it just blew me. I'm like, you know, he's been rapping like that for years, though, about paying attention to things, you know. And so so I think that even though there's this this transition for me, that it just it just maintains its, its value, um, you know, we we could talk about Tupac uh, and, and, you know, again, my mother, who's a strong black woman, uh, I, I checked out the video that, talking about Tupac and he's talking about his mother and his mother and his mother. My mother, my mother took me in 1970 something or so to hear Minister Louis Farrakhan preach, right? And I was blown away. Because his 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 analysis, right, his analysis of the condition of black people in America and the different ways in which uh, this broader system is impinging on the rights and freedoms of people to be to be themselves. Right. Was very powerful to me. That's why I stayed open to, you know, to uh, keep being being broad about my understanding about who can offer uh, insights. Uh, about the world, about the uh, about uh, politics and such. Like, who can offer those insights and provide that power? So, for me, um, again, I I I think my transition was from a person who appreciated the difference of hip hop, then my mother injecting into me 
these ideas and understanding. I mean, I will tell you in 1987, I graduated from college. That summer, I read Black Power. I read um, the Comrade George, the story about George Jackson. I read Black Panthers. I read um, uh, Iceberg Slim. Like I, the one thing, the one thing that I got from all of that was I was drowned in blackness. And these were all books that my mother owned in her personal library. And of course, I can't say that I was inspired to read those myself. I, I, they were there all the whole time. She said, you, you're going to read for the summer. <laughs> and so that's what I began to pick them up. But they, they helped to, to shape my worldview. And then um, black political movements have always been grounded in some art form that goes beyond the movement itself. Um, you talk about civil rights and you think about how that whole entire uh, generation of movement uh, p- participants was grounded in music, right? Gospel music, struggle music. like. And now, uh, to be quite frank, me understanding the significance of um, Sam Cooke's song, right? Change is going to like, like understand, like not knowing the broader context, but now hearing it now, under, understanding that they were in a struggle and music was part of the way that they that they uh, conducted themselves or uh, combated or engaged in that struggle. Uh, so I see again for me that that's, that's part of the whole transition for me. Uh, and it stays that way. Part of the reason I keep it very personal, though, is, again, is because uh, I, I typically am not a person who is uh, willing to engage in public discourse as a political, um, as, as a political sense of engagement. Right. As intellectuals, we do whatever. In fact, we actually cheat the game because we're it's okay for us to talk about it on paper in that context and that we cheat the game. Other people actually on the line really dealing with the real issues, right. Uh, that are on the ground. And so, so I, I think I've kept it separate so that I can speak my mind <laughs> without being held accountable in the, in the intellectual sphere, so to speak. Well, no, that, you know, and I mean, um, yeah, you know the, the and just you know appreciate you also just laying the background in terms of the influence of your mom in terms of just exposure to knowledge, right? And I think one of the things I appreciated about the Tupac interview was exactly this: you know, a young man. You know, I remember the first time I saw the actual interview. I was a sophomore in undergrad, and I remember being shook at how brilliant a seventeen-year-old Tupac was, right? The analysis he gives on sociology, life. And I was just like, if this guy's 17 talking this, you know, what am I doing at 18 as a sophomore? You know, I was shook. But he's understanding of knowledge and the praxis, you know, he's trying to be the very best of the Du Boisian sense where art is propaganda, right? This strong sensibilities of what the Black Panthers meant for that generation in which art goes in tandem with the political world and, and what it then does. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, you know, and even just thinking about itself, you know, one of the things that I think the interview for me in Tupac really was, but how do we humanize black artists, right? I mean, there's, there's always this conversation, right? Like, sometimes it's too much of a strain on a black artist to always produce art for propaganda. 
like and just so listening to your own assertions right like where does one draw the lines do you make art for art's sake or is this art for propaganda right yeah and it's definitely art for art's sake you know i was struck struck in a video by his you know seeing his his deconstruction of society as a as only as only a teenager could do but also uh as one that was enlightened he had the ideas but th- those ideas were not necessarily connected to specific people right so it's like how where do you how do you where do you get that tool where how'd you get that tool right, right, right. and it was very fascinating to to uh to see him navigate in that space i i i don't know I mean, he to me, he always maintained uh, his keen eye and observations and insights, but he was also to some degree drowned by the very thing that we talk about that's associated with hip hop, right? So that's the, you know, that's the the cutting edge. I wonder why. Why do you think that that particular video is so profound for you. I mean, of course, you talked about the age and thinking this guy's my age. And in fact, I would say that most artists actually pick up their largest fan base. That's their age. And it's easy to make it when you're young. And once you are 16, 17, 18, 19, Jay-Z, those people 50 years old still (laughs) still rocking with you. Right. Right. So what else what else was it about about that 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 actually captivated you? I mean, Again, the Black Panthers for me were significant. Uh, the Spook that Sat by the Door, another book that I read, is really like that gave me a new insight about how I need to behave in the academy, right? Yeah. But so, so, t- so tell me why, how, how, how is it that 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 particular video is so profound for you? Um, yeah, I mean, so on a personal level, I mean, it was it, so you know having being being an African immigrant from Zambia, right, in the context of coming to the U.S. when I was thirteen, um, I remember my first. English class, um, Miss Hulk gave me a text, um, Richard Wright's native son. So you can imagine, yeah, I'm like, you know, straight from Zambia, the context of race relations, we're talking Mm -hmm. about Richard Wright rewriting Othello and all these narratives and giving it a black perspective. And I remember being shook by the book. I was just like, good God, you know, and to this day, I think I've like almost read all of Richard Wright's work because of the profound sensibility he had to talk about blackness and that artistic sensibility. Um, so when I met to when I was really going through the, the work of Tupac, you know, I was like in college, not knowing what to do with my life. I was like an econ major, English major. I was doing poetry and I'm listening to him being so profound about what he wanted to do. It had an affinity for the arts because he was just so laced in what communal praxis means, right? He was somebody who always thought about pouring into people. Um, and so at that time, you know, it was a fascinating own identity, identity for my own self in terms of my own sense of being African, but a robust sense of blackness, right? Like, what does this mean for me to be in the context of like a Fresno in South California, right? like Central California? Um, and at that time, I was the president of Black Students Union on campus, right? So, <laughs> so I'm having to figure out, like, you know, I got cats from the West Indies, I got Black Americans, I got my Nigerian homies. What's going to bring us together, right? And so the community practice of the Panthers, I think, was something that was important, but also the arts, because so much of my own identity between, say, 14 and 18 
was music. We would listen to reggae, right? Afrobeats before it became a thing, you know? So we were all proud to be wearing African chains and stuff like that, right? <laughs> right. So it was this like glimpse into what a 17 year old could do with knowledge, right? Like it was the very way in which he was talking about a communal praxis. And I think for me, it was so eye-opening that at 17, instead of being individualistic, right? He had such a profound sense of community, right? And I think that really stood out to me to say, wow, one could use knowledge to be bonds with people, right? How one can then be part of a community and not as the pillar, but one pillar of a community, right? All right. So I, I think that's fascinating. It, I, I wonder how much overlap has been uh, in our, you know, intellectual trajectories, mm -hmm. given that I'm significantly older than you are yeah. um, and, and that recognizing that some of these, these, uh, these works that I was introduced as a young man still have relevance for even probably how you do analysis in your work, or probably how you do uh, evaluation, argumentation, the premises you have, right? So, uh, I mean, it's not lost on me that you have a picture of Nipsey in the back or Malcolm X, two of my favorite, you know, people for, for uh, what they were able to uh, provide in their lives. I mean, one, uh, one of the turning points, and I'm sure, I don't know, tell me this, have you ever read, for example, uh, the work of, uh, well, well, Malcolm X's autobiography outside of the context of academia? See, because for me, none of this came from being in school. Yeah. This is 100% my mama yeah. bookshelf <laughs> hit it right you know uh and in many ways you know think about Tupac in many ways uh also you know my mother took me to two you know the black union meetings with her her colleagues right this is like I didn't realize this now you got me speaking about it <clears throat> and she's ingrained this sense of identity in this way but so tell me though so did, did, is your is your what what influences you to gravitate toward particular intellectual thought does that come out of um your training or does that come from somewhere else man we're getting autobiographical now <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you know um just like you doc i mean you know both my parents you know my mom and dad in different spheres of my life for most of my life, my mom was strong about being a servant leader, right? Like being a servant leader was something she was strong on. Uh, my dad was always big on intellectual gifts, but always for community practice, right? So, so I think at an early age, my parents, you know, would always input this thing about, you know, whatever gifts you think you have are not just solely yours, right? It's, it's a communal practice, right? Um, and growing up with cousins and, you know, you grow up learning to share things and nothing mm -hmm. belongs to mm -hmm. you in the context, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so those formulations, but I didn't become intellectual until encountering people like Malcolm, right? Like I remember one time being the president, again, during my tenure as a president of Blackstone Union, um, there was an earthquake that happened in Haiti. And, you know, I was asked to speak about the predicament of Haitians in, in the context of Western politics. Uh, I got up on stage thinking I'm about to give this hurrah speech, right? I get there on stage, I totally lose voice, no language, no nothing. I say something really just like jib and people like clap. But I remember going straight to the library, right? After that mm. moment, 
I picked up all the collected speeches of Malcolm X. I mean, like all of them. I took them all out. Mm-hmm. I went home, locked myself in my room, and I read everything wow. Malcolm X. So the autobiography, right? Like his speeches to this day. And this is why I have him here because I'm like working on stuff around Malcolm. But that time, I remember after reading the speeches and autobiography crying. I was crying because I realized that this man gave his life, never known future generations of black people. Mm-hmm. Right. But he was he was really big. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Malcolm X is like, I pray that you grow intellectually. I pray that you know your position in the world and where you stand. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that understanding of knowledge and practice and then his undying love for black folk. You know, so I remember crying. And in that moment, I always knew Malcolm would be my favorite intellectual, right? Like, mm. he both had a lot of humility. He was ready to be say, I'm wrong. And we don't always do that in the academy, right? We think when you write, you don't wrote the last piece on this joint. You know? But I'll <laughs> right. cite you, right? Because the humility Malcolm had for facts, right, became really something mm. for me also to model as an intellectual, this aspiring intellectual, right, to say, I may be wrong here, right? But how do I learn from other people to be always be open about the different formulations? So yeah, so Malcolm became really instrumental for me. Um, and then Nipsey, you know, as I was studying on this other side, Nipsey was just, you know, LA, that's my guy. You know, the right, music was right. also communal, very much inspirational. I wrote my dissertation to Nipsey, right? Victory Lab, right? That mm. helped me write my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but again, you know, the communal practice, and I think um, the best of Black arts in some sensibilities is about the community, right? Like the griot from the context mm-hmm. of the African continent to the modern world how much we tell these stories that give life to our people of Matted and the message. So, so yeah. And then just, you know, I'd love to hear more about your reading of these works, you know, because for all the works that you were reading, you know, it's funny. I, you know, Ice Black Slim, all of them. Yeah. Like, I, I went through a period of my own sensibilities of how those things had mattered to me as well. Okay. Well, I will ask you one other one because I, I, I think it's, it's related to that, but I do want to say something about Malcolm. The thing that really drove me, was to see how his life was transformed and how he <clears throat> and how even even in prison had such a great desire to know that he spent time reading in darkness <laughs> you know just trying like like that's a hunger for understanding uh and then he he showed uh the strength as a practitioner of it, like, like I, I watched his videos when he's talking to, to uh, black folk who are, and there's a moderator, it's a white man, and this is black and white film, and <laughs> you know, so, so to me, in many ways, he, he represents uh, like the power of asserting oneself as a black person, uh, and I, and I wonder. You know, also how relevant his work, his thinking is in today's generation with respect to, you know, black political thought. Um, so, yeah, I just find him to be very powerful. You were asking me a question before and I, 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 I lost it, but I wanted to speak on Malcolm because that to me, that book was one of. That's also a book I read in the summer of 1987. So, uh, but yeah, so what, what, what did you, what was the question you had for me? You, well, you, and I mean, and just like you were surmising, right? I mean, just, and it, it goes back to just even knowledge, right? Like you're reading of all these texts in this time period and even just what it means. And even just, just asking again about the 
so let me maybe ask this question, right? Like you've had, you have and have had grad students, right? Like what goes into informing people into methodologies that matter? And also just thinking about your work, right? Like, you know, we talked about Tupac and the analysis of reading the world. I'm also curious how you read the world as both intellectual and artist, right? When you go off to do ethnographic work, are you using the lens of the artist? Is this the sociologist, right? Like, how do you construct knowledge? Yeah, so uh, I think the con- the construction of knowledge uh, is a is a very subjective uh, pursuit, uh, and that there are ways in which uh, your life has been impacted through thought that you just kind of naturally incorporate into what it is you're doing. I think that people like myself who engage in um, ethnographic research, uh, they are really artisans as well, or artists as well, uh, as they are intellectuals. So even the way you choose to tell a story, even the way you choose to engage the broader, you know, kind of racial systems that, that are affecting, you know, the lives, for example, in my case, Uh, the lives of African-American men who are pursuing social mobility through sports, like the ways in which you are telling that story are based upon how you are connected to or thinking about uh, broader society. So I think uh, in order for one to to be effective, uh, besides understanding the methodologies, in my case, sociology, ethnography, uh, and the analysis, is to also understand uh, one's relationship to broader world, broader theor- theoretical uh, thinking. Um, for me, the, 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 the difference between being an artist and being an intellectual is a, is a slight di- difference because in both realms, I'm consistently dealing with the issues of black people. And, and sometimes uh, the personal realm, as reflected in the music, sometimes overshadows and outweighs you know, the intellectual realm. I mean, I'm really right. I'm spending a lot of time currently diving in to critical race theory. And at the same time that I'm diving in, I'm realizing the relevance of critical race theory to my everyday perspective is pretty limited because I've got to figure out (laughs) how to deal with John next door. Right. And to, to, to simply focus on the broader kind of uh, legal historical perspective of our relationship. I need to I need some practical tools. Right. So that's why I say we, we as as uh, as theorists or people in in, um, in in black thought, political thought, we are we are removed in many ways from that direct engagement that takes place. And so for me, um, both as a as a sociologist using ethnography and as, as a creative, uh, it, it's art in both of them, right? It's art in both of them. And I draw on uh, the broader theoretical understandings of the world um, that help me sort out how to tell this story. Yeah, I mean, so no, I'm not just thinking about also just like the relationship between hip hop and sports, right? Like how many rappers want to be athletes and athletes? Well, Jay Z has a line, right? Like the only people who make it to the NBA are those who are banned from the gun. Or actually, right? <laughs> <laughs> you get choices: either rap hoop or, or learn how to do mm-hmm. something else, right? So, just thinking about that, like 
what and you play yeah so why would you bring that up because it's certain immediately when you said that i went to the conversation i was in college i was a freshman and think about when you talked about community and you talked about gathering and connecting i'm at a predominantly white university small school and i'm trying to figure out what i'm going to do with my life and all the brothers are hooping like that we they hooping and I wasn't a very good hooper, but I played a little bit. So I go to the gym and that was the way I got to be with them. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling my mother and I said, mom, I'm going to uh, go out for the basketball team. Now, you could imagine, given everything that I told you about my mother, what her instantaneous response was. Let me just frame it for you. Quote, son. Don't do that. You could be doing so much more. Right. And it's the choice that I made for myself. Right. But but recognizing in hindsight that that's the exact exact way uh, the the views that uh, black men are permitted to see. Right. Those things, you know, hip hop, sports. Right. Nobody was ever saying to me, yo, be a professor. Right. Be a, you know, my mother wanted me to be a lawyer. That's why I went to law school. Right. And when I was about to do the protest, she said, listen, you don't have the armor for this. You're not equipped. Right. None of this makes sense to me at the time. I'm just like, I feel fire. Right. Uh, And so I think in the realm uh, of, of one's development, that there's always these tantalizing. Uh opportunities that are laid before us that lead us back into a path that is pretty, pretty narrow. Um, And you frequently have to work not to be a caricature of yourself fitting the, the the stereotypes. Uh, And additionally, it actually keeps you from the pursuit of in many ways and the focus of, dealing with the problems of black people, right? The challenges always be, you talk about athletes from day one, Jordan was getting slammed because making all this money and not speaking up for black people in the right? So it's a tantalizing offer or opportunity that actually draws you away from being engaged in any real thoughtful way. Uh, LeBron James is one athlete that you know, he just plays with a little bit like he lets you know <laughs> that he understands, but he also he plays with it a little bit. Right. In a very different kind of way than uh, than his maybe his peers do. Then, of course, you have athletes who were activists, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Jim Brown. Right. They were all. But again, they're in that tantalizing realm. Right. Where they're they're putting something on the line because. They have to make a choice. There's a consequence for standing up in a certain kind of way. I'm just got this one. So, so what drove you to be a professor? Then, given you ain't trying to hoop, you ain't trying to rap, dog. So, how did you become a professor? I will tell you this. You know the power. The power of uh, the words of a person. Is significant. Um, I struggled in high school. I struggled in college. 
Let me let me just give you some stats to help people understand this. Maybe uh, I graduated high school with a 1.8 GPA. I finished 306 out of 366 students, uh, and I scored a 13 on the ACT. My first year as a freshman in college, I had a 0.88 GPA. Right, and so so uh, these were things that I was struggling through. When I failed out of law school, I came back home. My mom, <laughs> thank you, mama, was there. She said, listen, you got to go back to school. And I went back to school and I met this charismatic Puerto Rican professor who said to me in no uncertain terms, you are smart. You should get a Ph.D. Right. And it was because of that that I began the pursuit for extended knowledge. I was reading a lot now. Like I'm starting to, I'm starting to understand what my mother was telling me. Like, I'm like, look, son, you need some tools. You need some intellectual tools to help guide you through these borders. Right. But I wasn't understanding that at first. And then I began, I began to understand that. So, so let, let me ask you this thought, this question about the current uh, standing of black people. Uh, in your view, the current standing of black people around the world, right? Um, war in 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 Ukraine. Even there, we're seeing the exposure of the differential treatment of people of color in that context. We're seeing it in the context of who gets to come to America, what door they get to use, right? So what, what, if you had to assess, you know, the current state of black people in the world, what would you say? Do you have an intellectual that helps, helps frame what you would say? Yeah, absolutely, doctor. So you're trying to get me fired even before I start my <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, Malcolm does, you know, I mean, so one of the pieces I've been trying to get published and it's still under review now, it's almost a year, you know, was, you know, the, the one thing that I realized in reading Malcolm's work is that the last two of his years, he has, he was really trying to make a case about human rights being the most congenial thing to think about black existence. And a lot for that was the reasons in which he argued that slavery was never deemed as a crime. Right? The, the, the legal systems that we have in the world just gave OPEC mess to Africa, both the ending of slavery and colonialism, right? It just dovetailed into this pernicious history of crimes, right? So, you know, one of the most outrageous things in our particular moment is just to think about even what Obama symbolized in terms of not just American, but global politics. At the same time, on the tail end of this is George Floyd. You know, I mean, in our lifetimes, we're seeing the propping of Black men, either symbolicness to whitewash America's history and global history, the same time, the death of a black man becomes synonymous with global injustice, while material conditions across the globe for black people are not changing. Right. So we're, we're caught in these sort of traps of symbolicism, argumentations and change. Obama's change is supposed to symbolize something. No, it's through black. Obama's era engenders Black Lives Matter. I mean, literally in the era of the first black president is Black Lives Matter. Right. So that the tail end is George Floyd. And this is what Malcolm was arguing, right? We need categorical new changes in our thinking about black life. 
that it has to have something more grounded to it than always these Eurocentric notions, right? We're constantly caught up in the fight that white people want to have about black existence, which is why Ukraine matters for those reasons. Because in that moment, it's like, look, even in the midst of a war, your life is expendable. Mm. You, ne- you may not be the one who they're shooting after, mm. but we will surely ensure we check that. And that has a lot to do with also the European experience with Africa right mm. now, right? Slavery in Italy is still going mm. on in, in ways in which we don't talk about this, right? So, so I think for me, I mean, and I even said this at the onset of COVID-19, I said, I think we actually have to worry because everything about Europe has shown in a pandemic and disease, there's always new formulations of mm. war. And it's black people who become the target mm. of these things. Right? Mm. So I think we're really in a space where we have to reconsider a lot of things. And I think, you know, the point of this is that we need more empirically based formulations of struggle. Mm. Right? It can't just be ideologically. And I think a lot of times in the ivory tower, we're so caught up in revising history ideologically when, as you've been pointing out, we got real material conditions. Mm-hmm. Black people were dying in droves in the pandemic, right? I just recently wrote a, a piece about the ways in which black youth and school systems right now are facing levels of violence, like at the level in which are really bad, right? And so there's a real question for us, you know, post the pandemic, whatever life looks like, what does black life look like and organizing look yeah. like? You know, I think on the global, from the global perspective, uh, that is particularly frustrating for me to look across all of these countries, uh, black countries in particular, and to know and understand that that their material condition has not changed and that the level of dependence um, takes me back to, you know, uh, the quote unquote black separatists. It was like, yo, let's just leave, let's get away from this, right? But even in the nations where Blacks are the majority, they're still dependent upon the, the resources of other people because, of course, they have been exploited, right? Uh, but it's, it's challenging to think about how you would coordinate an effort to approach these problems when in the little video United States, and get even smaller, little video Chicago, we can't figure out how to, you know what I'm saying? So it's, 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 to me, in, in many respects, uh, it is, I guess, it makes me less optimistic about this. To, 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 to one of my favorite songs is Fight the Power, right? And it came out around the time I'm the, I'm the Black Panthers, Black Panthers, I'm drinking all of it, right? And it's blowing me away. They just did a reboot of that. They did a remix of Black Fight the Power in 2020. And Chuck D says, it's 2020, right? And you know, the relevance of that music for 2020 and the relevance of that music for 1988, 1989 is scary because guess what? Yeah. It's like I'm looking in the mirror or looking back in the past and seeing myself when I look at like, it's, it, yeah. you know, so rather than get bogged down with that, I just, you know, uh, there's some parts of being a black person in America uh, that you you can't escape. And I think often intellectual thought gives us an opportunity to find 
some leverage to survive this very real, consistent, frequent, daily uh, set of conditions. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> no, but and I mean, and this is why I mean, the arts have always been instrumental to just, you know, like what pointed out. I mean, for all the reasons, we, you know, the Black Panthers message, Tupac is schooled into this, you know, public enemy in them, you know. Just watching the video again, I was struck by how many signs they had. They had Paul Robinson in the back, they had Malcolm X, Frederick Douglass, right? A whole intellectual tradition to bear. And I think this is still one of the fundamental problems. You know, the thing I said about critical race theory was to say that this is really an attack around Black intellectual mm -hmm. life. Not so much, I mean, like, this is about the ways in which Black people are trying to think seriously about their conditions, right? So, I mean, Derek Bell has been dead for a couple of years now, but <laughs> since, the, you know, Critical race theory marriages, people are like, wait a minute. I mean, and that's the, the space we're in, the repression of black political life and thought. I mean, so many black intellectuals are being kicked out the academy for these very reasons, right? It's to censor the ability for black folk, which which then even hits harder when we think about, you know, black men and women dying saying, I can't breathe. I mean, it's just like before the pandemic, we're saying we can't breathe. You know, like this is the space we're in about having to reimagine. And I think this is why intellectual work matters for the reasons in which it's both art for art's sake, but even the political possibilities, what it means to exist in the world, right? I think this is why I think the Black artist has always mattered, right? You need the artist to help keep the imagination going about the possibility of existing in an anti-Black world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even to think with the idea, not just that you're inviting us to think about intellectual vocation, not just to think about knowledge, but also to think about what it is to intervene in a world where there is a cultural production of ignorance. What really resonates for me in, in thinking about public enemy is, you know, the line, ignorance is at an all-time high, right? Was it at an all-time high in the 80s? Is it at an all-time high now? How do we think not just about epistemology, but also agnotology, right? The cultural production of ignorance and doubt. And it's been a, a joy to think about how this conversation invites us to think about what it is to be an intellectual, to engage with vulnerability, to engage with humility, to think about it in a, yes, in a local context as it pertains to Chicago, but also as it pertains to global struggles. I think about CLR James's reminder that uh, ordinary people do not need an intellectual vanguard to tell them what to do or how to think. Um, I think about all of the ways in which you're working with uh, the works of, uh, say, the Montreal-born intellectual Richard Eitan, who was a professor in Chicago. And I'd really be keen to hear your reflections or thoughts on his idea that when we talk about the 1980s, we often talk about a hip-hop generation asserting their demands, their hopes, their dreams in a public sphere. And what Richard does in a really intriguing way is to say, well, what would it mean for us not to privilege a hip-hop generation, but to think about house as a means to understand what it is to resist white supremacy, what it is to think about 
playful and creative knowledge making, not just didactic declarations, what it might mean to refuse the overvaluing of black male pain. And yeah, so I'm really wondering, particularly coming from Chicago, Ruben, and, and thinking about that space, right, as it pertains to, I think we see it a lot in Kanye's Sunday services, right? This, this idea of what might it mean for us to rethink the 1980s, not just as a hip hop generation, but as a house generation. So I think <clears throat> to rethink the 1980s as a house generation, uh, I think would be to place uh, the emphasis on creativity, right? This is the, this is the way, uh, because certainly just as a as a one that enjoyed house music, I never saw house music as an act of anything more than creativity, right? That may be problematic to speak about it that way, but it was all it was all the soul, it was all the energy, it was all the love, it was all the carefreeness, right? So uh in that particular realm it does not for me to rethink of it in this way. It does not for me politicize blackness in the same way. Right. It's interesting because it was a niche, so to speak. Right. You, you were cool if you listen to house music and it was a very, it was a very closed space. Right. But hip hop was wide open in your face. And this is the, this is the, the, the representation of, I think the aggression that's already already been labeled and privileged uh, to urban blacks in particular, right? So I wonder if in redefining the 1980s using house music, if black people, which I doubt, would be seen in a more gentler, kinder, loving way, because that's all the energy that was exuded in house music. I, 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 felt, I felt no violence with house. It was love. You had, you had people singing soulful songs with the gospel influence, right? Acapella music, right? So it's all the, 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 the things that we know and understand about black people captured through art. But other people refuse to see, and they typically acknowledge those things through hip hop that are violent, aggressive, et cetera. So I, I think we might see the kind side uh, of blackness if we re redefine the 1980s in that way. You got me wanting to ask if the geographical questions here, right? Because of, I mean, like Trisha Rose and people have made like, you know, like Chicago versus say New York, right? Like why does hip hop get born in New York? And obviously DJ Kuhurk and them are throwing parties and all this. But the boomboxes, the, the aggression of hip hop in New York, because New York has always been seen as the aggressive mecca, right? Like, you know, so so now you have me really interested in like geography of the different expressions of black music, right? Because Chicago, I mean, this is interesting. I mean, there's like a whole different culture. The pastors from Chicago, I always joke about this with pastors from Chicago, like they're a different breed. Them brothers can talk. They're different from Harlem speakers. There's a different expression 
when Chicago preachers speak and you know I'm thinking about that. So so that's really fascinating <laughs> just to even just think about that. And I mean another thing that's been really beautiful about this conversation, and I, I completely agree with Ruben about house music as a a spiritual thing, right? That this wonderful way of thinking about Saturday night and Sunday morning right, coming together. Um, but I'm also wondering, I think you help us to think about the way in which rage, violence, aggression may be uh, ways in which blackness is confined and defined, oversimplified within the white imagination. I'm also thinking about Lewis Gordon's ideas around the politics of maturity and hip-hop. Right, so Lewis Gordon writes uh, an article thinking about hip hop as a pedagogical uh, expression, but he's making a point in this this article written a few decades ago now, and he invites us to think about the idea: why is it impossible to think about a middle aged rapper? Right. So he's writing at a point before, you know, Jay-Z has become into his 40s and 50s. And he's making that point to try and say that when we think about jazz, we think about artists maturing, right, with the music. And when we think about hip hop, a lot of the ways in which it is sold is not just in terms of youthfulness and vitality, but in relation to immaturity. And, and Lewis would, would separate the idea of age and maturity. And I think Delixo, you make that point so beautifully as well when you're thinking about Tupac's maturity as a teenager. Um, but yeah, I would, I'd be really keen to think that through as well. Like that notion of the politics of maturity and hip hop or, and or what it means to label something hip hop. And what are the associations that are made by media um, and other academics too, right? So the other thing that really stands out is whether we have the possibility of reinforcing boundaries or transcending them, right? So, So much in this conversation has been about what it is to be a serious academic and also thinking about what it is to be a playful, entertainer right and we're also thinking about well when you're a creative being when you're an intellectual you don't just reify those borders you transcend them right you think about intellectual work outside of academia as well as within it um and so yeah i was wondering how number one how might you reflect on how lewis's arguments have held up or not held up um in 2022 and also, yeah, what, what kind of tools and resources we have as thinking, feeling beings to not just reassert those binaries between what it is to be youthful and what it is to be wise, what it is to be serious, what it is to be playful, but to transcend, subvert them, um, or even smuggle moments of dissidence into the, the cultures that Amplify and repeat them. Delete. So I defer if you if you have some instantaneous thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean those those are all great insights and, and profound questions. You know, I mean just right off the bat, I'm just thinking of 
So it's interesting, right? You know, within the 1994, Americans Congress is like talking about hip hop as something that's decadent. You got these kids talking super brash. And, you know, this also enters into the era of the crack epidemic. Black men and black kids as being decadent, right? The hyper criminal. So I think what America locks in on is young black boys, particularly at that time, as being decadent, debased. Not only do we see this in their lifestyle, but their music becomes that much brush. So I think we get locked into reading youth culture as decadent, right? Which is, again, you know, when we think about the first early sort of publications around hip hop studies, right? Even thinking through Stuart Hall's work, right? Why it becomes important for American cultural studies, the way we can think through youth culture. So to your point, right, we get locked into the conversation about youth culture, what becomes of youth culture, particularly black hip hop and black American and black youth in terms of being locked as these are the hyper criminals, hyper predator uh, functionalities of sort of black American lifestyle, 1940, 1994, moving on. So I think that response gets also locked into how then young people are responding to their existence, right? I mean, I'm thinking about Illmatic, right? Nas talking about peeing on the walls of the elevator, right? Like, so I think there enters a crisis in, in American life in terms of Black American youth, right? What is to be done with these youth? Not only are we talking about education, but their prevalence of their music and their lifestyle. Um, and so the transcendence, and obviously, again, unfortunately, right, we see that some of the most popular artists at the time are gunned down. I think both Biggie and Park are 25, right? So these other questions then start getting laced. Gun violence, Black youth being incarcerated, right? So I think we get locked in strongly into the predicament of Black youth. And now, obviously, over the years, we've seen the transcendence, right? Nas, Snoop, I was just telling my partner the other day, Snoop is now doing advertisement for Corona on the beach, right? Like, you would have never thought, like, yo, what? Right? Like, he's now doing all these things. We're seeing these guys mature. But I think... The moment in which hip-hop enters into American life, both academically and even the legal Congress, right, it's a really strong argumentation to do what exactly should be done with Black youth. I think there was this real worry, and I think those boundaries have been reinforced then even in academic studies, right? We tend to think of Black youth, sometimes even in hip-hop scholarship, as still very debased and decadent, right? So we haven't got into these conversations about the maturity of so much of this work and what it can offer us if we start to turn our gaze and particularly think of them as people in a trajectory to adulthood, right? Like that that becomes an important part. And so I think more recently we've seen people make a case for like adult hip hop is emerging as a genre, right? Like Nas's album, even Jay-Z's 444, right? Like, and this is still the question for somebody like Drake as he's maturing, what becomes of your music, right? So I think in some senses, that's probably one perspective, but Doc, I'm sure you can also chime in and, and offer some insights on this. Well, I think, I think, I mean, I've always thought of hip hop as belonging to the youth, right? And it's fascinating because Daniel's question actually stimulates uh, a comparative analysis of the difference between, say, jazz, the difference between, um, you know, pop or soul, right? The, the, I would say, in fact, this is fascinating. I would say, in fact, that black artists are allowed to mature in those spaces, right? Uh, but as long as you engage in hip hop, even as accomplished as Jay Z, even as 
uh, well thought of or diversified as Snoop, right? Even as, you know, you're still, right? You're still uh, engaged in something that doesn't belong to you, but also calls up the imagery that people often talk about as you spoke, Delisso, about what to do with the youth. In, in many ways, I wonder, right? Because the other piece that goes with Jay-Z, who is iconic and singular, right? That's not the typical way to think about, right? So, so I wonder to what extent do people free him from the, the chain of youth associated with hip hop? Like, does he get a pass as an old rapper, right? And do people think of him as having uh, engaged conversation about things that are meaningful to black people as they mature, right? Does he really? So he talks about relationships, but the, the you know, Stepping out and violating relationships with your wife is the same thing as stepping out and violating relationships with your girl, right? So it's a, so I wonder, I wonder, does he get a does he get a pass? And and could an individual who is iconic uh, for doing those youthful things ever tell us something meaningful that we would then respect? In other words, once you have made yourself in the image of the the young rapper, can you ever get away from it? I, I would say in the case of Public Enemy, I mean, besides Flavor Flav's Flavor of Love on the side, right? Public Enemy from day one had been talking about important things. They were a different kind of a, and guess what? They basically died to the youth, but they still remain influential or inspirational in the context of people like myself who age out and realize the stuff y'all were talking about is the stuff we, we, we still talking about and need to talk about, right? So I think the the maturing, I mean, it's sad for me too, because I'm a, I'm a creative engaged in hip hop. And I always ask myself, like, will this have meaning to other people? Especially when I talk about things that are related to past history and experiences. Or even when I talk about things as a professor, right, where I'm engaged, are people even hearing that? Because the genre itself says this belongs to the young people and all the bad things that go with it. I'll just say for the last thing, I do a lot of street rapping. And when I first got here, the first day I went out, I was engaged by the police. I told the police, they said, is there anything we can do for you? Let us know. I said, yeah, you can do this. Tell your colleagues that I will be here present. The next day, I was engaged by the police again. Right? Then I was engaged on campus by the police. So here's the thing, right? I'm I'm rapping about grown people stuff. I'm not talking about shooting nobody. I'm not even like I'm talking, right? But I cannot 
outstrip this notion or idea that that belongs to the young people and all the criminalized ways of thinking about them exist as well. Yeah. No, it's such an astute way of inviting us to reflect again on music that is often associated just with a distraction from politics can also invite us to think about a world in which law is not associated with domination. And I think there's also a way in which we can circle back to what we took from Malcolm's reflections or story or theorization of conversion and transformation, right? So this idea that when we read Malcolm, when we read Fanon, these are stories of conversion, transformation, the possibility of growing, transforming, imagining a different self. I mean, one of the things I mentioned to my students is if you are to think about an audience for your writing, what might it mean to write for a future version of you? You know, I was in awe throughout the conversation as I find it so incredibly fascinating, this discussion surrounding the intersectionality of the arts and academia. You know, as scholars, at times there's a desire to separate our interests and passions from our academic interests because of the fear of any sort of connotation that may be associated. I went to a performing arts high school and when Dr. Daniel was talking about, you know, the maturity of jazz music, I've seen firsthand the different genres of arts and how they carry a different level of respect at times. And it's difficult not to fear those sort of connotations that are associated because, you know, although we may carry ourselves in a certain way, the outside perspective can sometimes blindly associate certain forms of arts with a certain persona as well, you know, and the intersectionality um, and the intersection of those different dimensions should never be overlooked as they meld into one to make up a person, right? So this is all talked about throughout the conversation, but I just found it so engaging and I thoroughly enjoyed sitting in today, but I wanted to know, and I, the listeners also want to know, you know, we talked about hip hop, we talked about jazz, but for our final questions, we're very interested to know, what are you currently reading and listening to? So I'll say, um, it's really, it, it may sound uh, self-serving, egotistical, narcissistic, but nothing hits home like my own music because it's an exact reflection of the pain and struggle that I'm dealing with. And it's inspirational to me to know that I could hear it and move beyond that. Um, as, as a listener of music, I really, really like a lot of local people. And the reason why I connect to local artists is because there's a piece of their story that you can understand because you have direct access to them. So that their story is very, it's, uh, it's personal and it's, it's directed and you can apprehend it. Whereas artists that are big, they're away from you and everything's on the on the stage, so to speak. And it's not it doesn't seem as real to me as someone who's like really talking about, you know, what they're dealing with on this particular block. And, you know, something about that context. So I like a lot of local artists that most people most people haven't heard of. Uh, and I, I like discovering new artists as well, because there's and I'm not the type of person that can reflect on a line that people. Say or memorize it, but reflect on it. 
right? So it doesn't even, it doesn't stick with me beyond. And my own music is that way. It doesn't stick with me beyond, you know, that moment. The, the sentiment does. And that's what I find. I find powerful. Um, and I'm reading, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, work that has an intersection in many ways. And that is a lot of work on critical race theory, uh, because I do research on urban nightlife and have identified in many instances cases where people are being discriminated against in the context of nightlife. Uh, the critical race theory tells the big picture, but I'm really, really interested in how are the brothers and sisters dealing with that discrimination directly on the ground when they encounter it, right? So I want to theorize about it or understand the theories about it, but I also want to be focused very much on the stories they tell because those stories will give us the ammunition or the guidance for techniques to address that that discrimination directly in that context. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, um, so I'm in the midst of uh, finishing up a book project on um, the dehumanization of black males through Western sciences, right? So I've been watching a lot of anime because anime fascinates me to a degree in which it's really like a global perspective, not just the human, but, you know, the ways in which human life is expendable. Um, and that's been freeing my mind to do research to think about black life in that similar sense as under the sciences, right? The expendability of black people's lives since the age of the enlightenment to a contemporary moment. So that's been really freeing just to give me the courage to just to keep researching and, and thinking through this. Um, and then I love listening to black comics, you know, Cat Williams, my guy, you know, I listen to a lot of Cat Williams. Um, Paul Mooney's my dude. He keeps me grounded. You know, in another sec segment, I could talk about how they both helped me with my teaching pedagogy. So, Doc, you're talking about critical race theory. You know, I didn't really start living out critical race theory until I started combining Paul Mooney and Derek Bell's work together, right? It became like, wow, okay, Paul Mooney is doing exactly what Bell is writing about, right? Race relations, the pitfalls, the permanency of racism, interest convergence. And that really has also helped my own pedagogy, especially moving to Canada. I've been in Canada now for a year after 19 years in the States, right? So, it's trying to figure out what race relations look like in a new context. I've been relying a lot on both anime and black comics. Um, I was just telling my partner this summer, I may want to do some open mics, just a comedy to keep me grounded, right? So I got my little jokes here and there. I'm trying. But you know, so I'm relying on the arts to free me both, you know, existentially and intellectually to keep me grounded with different projects. It's critical. I mean, it, it, it's so wonderful to hear about how one can refuse the idea that seriousness means dullness. I think that's that's such so critical. Like so the idea one of the things I talk about in in, in my book I have like um reflections on black cultural critics who were writing in the nineteen eighties for a, a newspaper called The City Sun, um kind of independent black newspaper in New York. And the reviews of comics like uh, Paul Mooney uh, but also the critiques of comics who emerged in that time and entertainers who emerged in that time and the fear that they entered into American pop culture as speaking and shrieking commodities, right? So the uh, Eddie Murphy's, Chris Rock's, but not the idea that that's all they could be, right? That they had the potential to grow and transform at a later date if they were willing to 
learn the way Delitzo talked about being open to learning from other teenagers and also elders. Um, and I think the other thing that really shines through is this idea that one of the ways to be serious is to be a comic and is to take seriously the black, bitter and working class humor that emerges in the United States um, in modernity. Yeah. Um, and this conversation challenges us, provokes us, invites us, welcomes us to think about those connections. Mm -hmm. And I can't thank you enough for sharing so much of yourselves. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. that a thought-provoking podcast, Daniel? Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to hear your takeaways from the conversation. Sally Al-Sayed, which is the producer and editor of the podcast, will be joining us to think with and through the work and ideas of Ruben and Delitzo. What do you both think about today's conversation? Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed listening to Ruben and Delitzo speak about what influenced their current intellectual thought. The one part of the conversation that really resonated with me, and I think will resonate with a lot of people who've gone through the traditional academic system, is when Ruben was talking about how uh, when you're seen as an intellectual, typically that comes with the expectation that everything that has to do with pop culture or quote unquote low level culture, um, you're expected to keep that from intruding into academic spaces. There's still a lot of limitations on what forms of learning are valued when having to adapt to the limitations of the academic and administrative requirements of the university. And this makes me reflect on what form and whose knowledge is legitimized, reproduced, and for what purpose through the current education structure. I really appreciated how both Ruben and Delisso spoke about how much more there is to learn outside of the classroom from family or community or experiences and that knowledge deserves to be valued and taken seriously. I love that idea around intergenerational communication, right? I loved Delitzo talking about just bumping in or following Ruben around the campus and wanting to learn from him, wanting to hear how an elder had developed his ideas and thinking about how Ruben had a sense of vocation, a sense of mission to share his perspectives. Um, I'm just back from a trip and um, I was in conversation with a lot of folks from Afghanistan and they talked about how the metaphor they have for teaching is the idea that the teacher is a candle, right? That shares his, her, the light with the students so they can feel warmth, feel the light, feel um, opportunities be uncovered. And as Sally mentioned, that sense of how these male scholars were inspired not just by each other, but also by their mothers, was fascinating to think about. 
how they're thinking with and through female scholars was intriguing as well, particularly because so many of the musical choices that they picked were male artists. So as we continue with the Black Studies podcast, I'd be fascinated to think about how other scholars and artists and thinkers are imagining and engaging with the idea of masculinity and also thinking not just about gender in an abstract way, but in terms of which authors, which musicians we cite, we amplify, we uh, draw attention to, and are those voices um, diverse in relation to gender, class, age, etc. No, I, I love I love those pieces that were mentioned. You know, I think it, it goes back to this notion of lifelong learning. And when we talk about lifelong learning and just the importance of learning from other people's lived experiences, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting concept, but it's also something that sometimes gets lost in academia and it gets lost as the years go on and we start to sometimes become a little bit tunnel visioned. Um, and, you know, Daniel, as you mentioned, um, other scholars and artists and not closing our mind, um, you know, when not closing our minds when we don't see things fit into that quote unquote prototype, as Delitzo and Ruben mentioned, is such an interesting concept um, because it talks about, you know, if, if, the, if a teacher is a candle and is sharing their wisdom, is sharing the opportunities with their students, um, it would be very hopeful or I, I would at least be hopeful that, you know, we would be able to grasp the entire lived experiences, not just the aspect of their lived experience that we believe will be beneficial for us. So just to, you know, be able to take a step back and really be able to grasp everything that um, an individual is saying, no matter whether or not they fit into the academic scholarly prototype that one is expecting. And I know throughout the podcast, they mentioned a lot about um, the, the kind of respect that's added to a certain hobby or a certain interest, especially in the world of academia. Um, and it's not always the it's not always perceived the way in which it should be. Um, but I think that's such an interesting concept of just lifelong learning. And it's it's so important to always, you know, keep our mind open to um, to learning from everyone and not just being selective with, with who we listen to and who uh, we give the time of day to as well. It allows us to dream of other possibilities, can spark imaginations, can spark research projects, and thinking creatively and expansively about collaborative knowledge making, creative knowledge making is something that. I'm thrilled that the Litso is bringing to Queens and I'm very grateful for Ruben's ongoing commitment to that uh, struggle to acknowledge the value and the legitimacy of the insinuating rhythms of the street and intellectual work produced outside as well as within university settings. Um, maybe we could pause here. And if you'd like to reach out to us, please do so at Instagram, where we have the handle at Black Studies Podcast. You can also drop us a line at the Black Studies Podcast at gmail.com. 
And please feel free to rate and review us. Tell us what's working. Tell us what's not working. Tell us what you'd like to hear more from. And yeah, we'll be back next week with another episode. And we're really excited to think through the fantastic possibilities of blackness. And we hope that you have a wonderful week filled with joy. Take care. Thank you.